0: Welcome to this month's episode of Traumaturgy, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of theater and trauma. Unfortunately, Loretta won't be joining us this month um, due to the many responsibilities of being a professor and a psychologist and a mom and a wife. So, um, you're stuck with me, Suzanne, and I asked an old friend of mine, from when I taught at Colby Sawyer College, uh, Dr. Omari Jackson uh, to uh, come on board and join Traumaturgy and see what he thinks. So it, it was a fun experience. We did two um, all-women roundtables and uh, about different subjects. We learned a lot, and I hope that you will as well. So buckle in. Here we go. Traumaturgy, Season 2, Episode 3. I'm excited to bring this next panel discussion uh, to you all. It's on intimacy uh, direction, and it features three amazing female coordinators. The first is Dr. Kate Bussell, who's the founder of Heartland Intimacy and Design and Training an intimacy training company which offers academic, accessible, and affordable, individualized intimacy training entirely online. She earned a PhD in theater and performance studies at the University of Missouri, and she's been staging intimacy and developing intimacy pedagogy for six years. She's taught workshops, presented at academic panels, and designed intimacy for productions. Our second panelist is Ann James, who has an extensive career in theater education, stage direction and conflict resolution in both corporate and artistic environments. As an internationally certified educator, she's had the opportunity to teach theater on four continents. And she's been featured as a moderator in Intimacy and COVID-19 with Theater Communications Group and HowlRound and has presented with the Los Angeles Theater Alliance, the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and Lincoln Center's Director's Lab West. She's a published author on HowlRound and has been a featured intimacy specialist on other affiliated panels throughout COVID-19. Anne is devoted to making both stage and screen safer places for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And she started a company, Intimacy Coordinators of Color, to ensure that. Our last panelist is Laura Ricard, an intimacy choreographer, coordinator, director, actor, and professor. She's the co founder and head faculty of theater intimacy education. Laura choreographs, consults, and teaches workshops on best practices for staging intimacy for professional and educational theater and film across the country. She serves as the primary in- intimacy coordinator for the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. She's an intimacy coordinator with NBC Universal. And she's a contributor to the first book on theater intimacy staging sex best practices tools and techniques for theatrical intimacy with chelsea pace as a director and actor she has worked in film television new york city regionally national tours internationally and on devised solo productions i really think you'll enjoy this panel and learn a lot about this important aspect of the theater landscape I'm Suzanne. Um, she her hers um, a theater um, assistant professor at York College and um, theatrical intimacy newbie. So um, so thank you all for coming. Um, Omari, would you um, would you introduce yourself a little
1: bit? Yeah. Uh, I'm Omari Jackson. Uh, as Suzanne said, I'm a sociologist by training, uh, but I teach in the School of Education at Morgan State in uh, in Baltimore. Oh, cool!
0: Great. And do 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 you three know each other? Like, I mean, yeah. It, okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure. It's like, do we need, do the rest of you need to introduce yourselves? Or okay. Um, I will say that um, I did take. Um, a six-hour um, workshop this past weekend with um, theatrical intimacy education and um, and that was helpful for me one thing I wanted to ask you about Laura from that is um, what um, what the workshop leaders said was that um, you know, not tomorrow, but eventually it would be wonderful if this was common practice in the field and uh, you all were out of business. <laughs> <laughs> will, you, will you talk a little bit about that sort of like business model?
2: <laughs> I mean, Chelsea and I, our, our research that we combined is, you know, about 15 years of anecdotal um, academic and professional um, research and uh, our mission has always been to um, train everybody in the room first and then specialists when those, those people want to be specialized um, but our thoughts have always been wouldn't it be so great if these tools were such common knowledge that it that the industry really um, was so aware of where power dynamics have been unbalanced where authority hasn't been managed responsibly responsibly where we can really provide a space where everybody can be brave enough to take responsibility for their own autonomy without fear of retribution that's always been part of our guiding practices and so uh, the goal has been uh to if we could get these tools in everybody's hand then we wouldn't need this business anymore, right? Um, so that's all. That's you know that's all, always been one of the goals because I think um, the intimacy work has been around as long as people have been doing theater. It, intimacy got staged. Sometimes it got staged well, and sometimes it did not get staged well. Um, it could have been done better, um, and and sometimes it was done really well. Um, and a lot of people have been looking at better ways to do this work Um, for a long time. There's been stunt coordinators in Hollywood, particularly female identified stunt coordinators who've been doing intimacy work and not getting credited for it because the title wasn't acknowledged by the industry. And the Me Too movement happened and the Me Too movement motivated the industry to say, intimacy, we hear there's this discipline out there, we hear there are these folks out there Let's, let's go find out what's going on. And so there were folks out there um, who were. To- called intimacy choreographers. Kate was one, I was one. There was folks out there. Uh, Anne was developing these, cir- these circles of intimacy. And if I'm not saying that correctly, Anne, please correct me. You know, there were people out there doing this work, especially um, a lot of people doing this work were people of the global majority, especially looking at how we have a better balance of power dynamics in the space. But the indus- it took the Me Too movement for the industry to go, oh, but there's this discipline. And we think it can be helpful, and the industry is right in that this discipline can be helpful and it can provide great models and the research that we in particular have looked at Chelsea and I definitely is research that can go towards all of us having better practices, not just in moments of staging intimacy. The other side I would say to that, and this is why it's so important that we get the tools into everybody's hands beyond having intimacy specialists, is what the Me Too movement made the industry wake up and say is, oh my gosh, there's a gaping wound in our industry. A lot of people have been hurt. A lot of people have been traumatized. And that hasn't just been in moments of staging scenes of intimacy. That's happened in other areas of our work. So it's great that it made people go okay there's this discipline let's honor it let's get it out there we need a we need a practice for when we're staging um physical storytelling in our most vulnerable moments but the other thing that the industry has to realize is that intimacy specialist cannot be band-aids for that wound and that's a little bit of what happened at first was okay we'll hire an intimacy person and then we don't have to talk about anything else that me too exposed We'll put this Band-Aid on and then we won't look at that Band-Aid. And what happens if you do that is then the wound festers and it never heals. So what's been great is I think intimacy specialists have been a great salve to healing that wound and getting great conversations happening. But we can't really heal that wound that um, abuse of power dynamics in particular have caused in our industry if we don't get everybody in the room educated, not just in intimacy practices, but in consent practices, establishing boundaries, respecting people when they're leveraging their own person and roles. So... um, so yeah, we wanted to have a practice for staging intimate movement, but we also wanted tools that made everybody who was already in the room better at being in the
1: room. So then, can I ask a follow-up question to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you were just speaking about int- intimacy specialists not being able to heal the wound, um, do you feel like like all professionals take the field seriously or i know you say you feel like some kind of use it as a band-aid or sometimes we when we're speaking about underrepresented minorities we speak about it as a checkbox, like oh done that so do you feel like they're not giving you the support the what is it that
2: i think that they are i think they absolutely are and i think they're taking the the role very seriously and i think that they're seeing the positive outcomes i think a lot more than they were a year ago. And Some people look at intimacy specialists as if I hire an intimacy choreographer or an intimacy director, I've checked the box that there'll be no sexual harassment, that there'll be no abuse of power, that nobody will, now no one will recognize that they have more privilege over anyone else in the space because I checked that box, hired that person. And that's not what, we cannot solve all that. We can't, if I have someone call me and say, I want to hire you an intimacy, I need an intimacy choreographer because I need someone that stops sexual harassment and makes everything safe at my theater company, I can't do that. I'm, I cannot guarantee that I will make things safe 100% of the time. I'm not there 100% of the time. And if your institution has a problem with sexual harassment, that's not happening on on the days or just on the days you're staging intimacy that's an internal problem in which we have to get everyone educated so we can all move forward together better my presence will model good behaviors my presence will give you tools that i can model that can help you move forward and make things a little bit safer and definitely um hopefully get you interested in educating yourself and everyone around you i can be i have bystander intervention training so i can prevent sexual harassment when i'm there but i'm not there all the time 100 of the time and so if there are things that uh, that are happening beyond just focusing on staging moments of intimacy in any organization not just in Theater, we need to get everybody a little bit more aware in consent-based practices, establishing boundaries, um, having bystandard intervention training, having mental health first aid certification. These are all tools that we expect the intimacy person to have. But if we want to make the whole industry more progressed, we want to get these tools into everybody's hands
0: as well. Kate, I saw, um, did you want to add on to that? I sort of saw your your, your face being like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you have something to add?
3: There are certainly a lot of people out there that are on board with intimacy work. But the people who are on board with intimacy work aren't necessarily the people we're trying to reach, mm-hmm. right? So we have this element, too, that a lot of these people have colleagues who have been doing theater practice their particular way since the dawn of time, and they are very set in their ways. And so there's a little bit of negotiation that has to happen in order to bring these practices fully into theater departments. Uh, Some of the things I've encountered have been involving, you know, someone who's really progressive, but they have a colleague who is just not on board with it, doesn't see value in it, and then their students are having to navigate the tension between those two classrooms, which is a really interesting challenge for them, but it also creates an opportunity for those students to become empowered, to speak up for themselves in those spaces in which the intimacy practices might not necessarily be welcome. But of course, you do also have to recognize the inherent power dynamic there, that those students, it's at a significant risk and a significant cost to them uh, when they do have to go up against those particular power dynamics. And I do want to call in Nicole Brewer into this space uh, because she has a quote that has just really resonated with me from her anti-racist theater workshop that I think absolutely applies to intimacy work, which is... Because safety is subjective, it is impossible to make a one hundred percent safe space. It is impossible. So to put that onto an intimacy specialist coming into the room is pretty unfair. Um, and putting that really on any you know if it's a cultural consultant for example to put all of the the burden and all of the labor of creating the safe space on the cultural consultant that's a really heavy burden to bear. Um, so it's important to recognize that no matter how many things we can do to help eliminate harm within the space, the reality is we will likely cause harm in the process. The question is how we handle it afterwards.
0: Yeah, I really, uh, I appreciate that, um, Kate, because exactly, I feel like um, this work is married to so much other work um, that the industry is, is doing now and, and hopefully uh, people are participating in. And, and so, Ian, I wanted to go to you because I saw, um, you know, on your, um, you know, the, the um, Intimacy Coordinators of Color on your website, you specifically uh, talk about guidelines um, from the EEOC. And so would you, would you address that and how that's informing the work that, that you're doing specifically?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, what we want to infuse into the intimacy industry at ICOC is the understanding that intimacy can manifest itself in different ways when it comes to a person's identity and their intersectionality. And so what we use as a guideline is the protected classes of the EEOC uh, in order to make sure that when a person of any of those particular classes enters into uh, a theatrical situation or an entertainment situation, that they are protected as an individual. And then we infuse that into our training and into our advocacy um, and into the way we we uh, have conversations with predominantly white institutions. Uh, right now, I also belong to a company or, or part owner of a company called Black Bee Entertainment. And uh, there's an intimacy specialist, there's a diversity specialist, and there's a cultural specialist. And we've kind of joined forces and we're moving into... Um, large institutions, uh, one of them being ART New York, who has a 300 theater membership. And we're providing classes and workshops to help those membership organizations with their issues and with their uh, issues with intimacy, when when they have uh, context or scripts or plays, or performance pieces that utilize intimacy um, to help them make sure that all the classes that their cast members embody are looked at responsibly and are cared for responsibly. Um, I'd like to speak to also, I'm kind of like bridging bridging the nation here. I'm working in New York also, but I'm also out here working professionally in Los Angeles and while i agree with my colleagues that the the field is becoming more accepted uh i was just on set and the lead principal a-list actress absolutely does not want an intimacy coordinator to work with her and she feels completely embodied she feels completely empowered she feels like she can handle and so it was it was me talking with the line producer, talking with the director of the episode about, you know, it's not just about the principal actor. It's also those actors that are engaging in these moments of intimacy with the actress. And So they seem to understand that it was important that I be there and, you know, we'll just handle this particular person genderly, but that I I do serve at the purpose of the actors and that uh, making them feel safe and helping them to feel brave in their choreography uh, is is most important. And so we'll just kind of have to handle that particular um, individual. But I thought that it was um, enlightening and wonderful that the director, who is male, understood that the male actors interacting with this woman also needed the protection of intimacy coordination. Um, so that was, that was inspiring. But again, there's still this question of acceptance of the fields um, bit by bit. Uh, we're broadening the fields to, to be more accepting in those cases, in those instances.
2: Yeah, and that's why it's so important uh, when you come up against moments like that, you have the support of the producers and the directors and the other people there. And if they don't have knowledge or understand how it works, um, it can, uh, you know, then who's going to support you? Uh, I was on set last year in New York right before the pandemic working on a show. And um, I was so grateful because the producer, one of of whom was Amy Poehler, was just so excited to have me there. And, um, and it was actually she we were talking about this role evolving in the industry. And I said, well, people have been doing this work for a long time. And she said, but it was so important, it was given a title. It was so important. And, it, and she was the first person to really point out to me that that title from, from the because to me, that title has been around a long time intimacy choreographer. And that, uh, it, that term has been around for a long time. So the title not existing hadn't occurred to me and when she said, but it was so important that they gave it a title. And I was like, oh, you're right, that title, the intimacy coordinator, choreographer, director, it it, it took, it, it wasn't a title that was ever familiar in the industry yet. It was familiar to me. And so I had kind of forgotten that the industry had not gotten there yet.
1: You know, can I backtrack a little bit to something that Anne was mentioning about intersection? Um, you were talking about intersectionality can you explain that a little bit for the listeners and speak about how um, the intersection of those different social identities can change a, a situation of intimacy
4: yeah i mean we all enter the world and create our identity based on influences around us and who we are on a molecular level and so intersectionality speaks to who are, who, uh, who? we want to put ourselves out into the world as. For instance, I identify as a fat, black, queer woman. And so all those things that I name myself are my responsibility and it is up to society to accept me in all of those intersectionalities. And when we're looking at intersectionality, I don't think it's about breaking it into the different parts. I think it's about respecting that those parts exist and that at any given point consent can be given or taken based on a person's intersectionality and that we have to be aware as as intimacy specialists, not only of the verbal cues that we get from our actors, but also from the physical cues and reading the emotional intelligence of the room, making sure jokes aren't being cracked about any kind of identity that a person may have. And so, yes, there are differences based on different sections of a person's intersectionality, but for the big picture, we just wanna make sure that that person is giving their consent and feeling respected Taking their whole identity
0: into consideration. Thank you. That's you know, um, that's really all very helpful. Um, you know, because again, as theater people, we so, for a long time, right? The idea was, you cast the best actor, and it doesn't matter, and they do the job, and um, and if it, if you kiss, you kiss, and you know, and 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 you know, that's just the way the business is. And, and thankfully, I think we are now coming to understand that um, who the actor is and what they bring, their background, uh, their personhood matters. And, um, and, and this idea of, and I love this, this idea of the boundaries and that, um, and that your boundaries are shifting and um, and to have an advocate in the room um, as an intimacy uh, coordinator or choreographer is really important. And so I, I appreciate um, all of that um, explanation. It's interesting to me that, um, that you're on set, of course, because we know, um, I guess, thank goodness, otherwise there'd be no new shows on Netflix, but we know that, um, you know, that LA and, and you know movies and television are, are working, whereas theater for the most part is not. And um, so I wanted to um, I want to ask you, Kate, I want to start with you, Kate, um, about changing, you know turning this intimacy training uh, to online. because um, Heartland um, intimacy design and training really, you've talked about a very clear um, structured online training um and but you know if you're the uninitiated you might be like well how could you possibly do intimacy training online so i wonder if we could talk a little bit about that and if we could start with you kate
3: Absolutely. Well, I actually started Heartland pre-pandemic in August of 2019. Uh, I saw a gap in the training that was currently being offered uh, in the fact that a lot of it required in-person participation. It required people to travel um, to pay a good chunk of change for, you know, housing, workshop, food, transportation, things like that. And For me, one of the things I saw was an inequity in terms of class in that it was enabling more people who are privileged financially uh, to be able to access this resource when in reality, it needed to be accessed at all levels. So with my creation of Heartland, what I did was find a way to develop this pedagogy that is 100% asynchronous at your own pace Uh, And what I get to do, which is such a luxury, is I get to work one-on-one individually with each of my students on their own particular training journey. So I have this luxury using this platform to be able to very specifically using video recordings that the, um, the choreographer, designer, director, what have you, takes themselves of them leading the exercise. And then I have the ability to go back in and say, okay, at timestamp, blah, 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 you said this. And they can actually play it back and watch it and learn from that experience and what they need to shift and change to adjust moving forward. So it's been a really nice luxury that I get to really get to know these fantastic artists that I would not have had a chance to meet otherwise uh, in these specific ways. And I'm able to reach out to, to people who, you know, they teach at a small, rural college in Kansas, or they are a high school teacher at um, a underfunded district in California that they wouldn't be able to have the resources to access training um, had it not been provided to them online. Certainly when everybody went online and we did this massive pivot, uh, I reached out to several organizations being like, hey, if you need help, I've already done this. So if you need a hand, let me know. Um, But certainly many of the intimacy organizations right now are offering some sort of workshop online. Um, I know both Laura and Ann offer them through their organizations as well. But for me, to create a training that doesn't require me to physically be in the space with them, but still has all of the rigor and all of the academic integrity that an actual online course needs and has, I think has a lot more uh, weight now that we've had a pandemic. I think that a lot of people go, oh, yeah, it's really hard to make a good online class. It's really hard. Um, So with this pivot, uh, it's been really interesting to see the people who are coming in And another thing I find very interesting is I actually am having a lot of older white men signing up to take my course. Um, So I think there's something to the privacy that comes with that space of being able to feel safe to ask those questions when they know that they can have probably enacted problematic things in the past. Um, But, you know, having you know, the chair of a the theater department take my course and say, you know, I'm going to implement this with all of my students is pretty fantastic. So it's been a really enjoyable experience.
0: That's really, the, the asynchronous part of that is really fascinating to me. Um, so clear, clearly, I already said, Laura, that I took the, um, the TIE um, synchronous online training. Can you talk a little bit about how you all decided how you Have worked to to pivot your uh, training to online at this point. Sure,
2: I mean the initial idea took us by surprise. I'll be honest because um, Chelsea and I are both uh, full time professors. We both work on film sets. We both work in professional theater, and we both have children. Um, So so we had um, we we've been going in person and doing uh, doing a lot of in person work when we could fit that in and. I think with just the busy, busy, busyness of our lives, starting an online version as well, just we just hadn't had the space. <laughs> and then when the pandemic happened, um, we uh, we we thought, well, let's let's try it out. Let's see let's see how we can adjust and shift our curriculum online and see what that looks like. Uh, and so we did, and it has been. Um, we did not. We thought like ten people would sign up. <laughs> Um, and it's it's been it's been enormously humbling and grateful that people come. Yeah, uh, you know, we've shifted to um, a lecture Zoom version with some with some think pair share activities. Um, and and we've also beyond that beyond taking what we already had, we were able to make some more highly specialized workshops. Um, and some shorter workshops that focus on certain things. We were able to bring in our affiliate faculty on equity, diversity and inclusion, who's been doing, uh, looking at the intersectionality of intimacy, race and consent for years now is Kaya Dunn, Assistant Professor Kaya Dunn at the University of North Carolina Charlotte. She's incredible. We were able to bring her work um, and offer her a platform to bring her work to folks. We were, uh, Chelsea and Kaya uh, worked with Brian Rear at Princeton University to create the equity, diversity, um, intimacy, equity, diversity, inclusion, intimacy initiative, the EDII, which Anne is a part of. Um, And we were able to have the first meeting of that online last August. So it's... so many people that, that were involved and that come to take our workshops. Um, and we met Anne through one through one of our workshops, our last in-person workshop in L.A. That was so much fun. It's so nice to see your gorgeous face tonight. Um, so, um, you know, I just I miss people so much. Um, but, but, but what it has done is because it took us, we, it, especially last year, and the industry went on hold for a moment. We all took a break and all these amazing people said, okay, I'm gonna use this time to figure out how I can do better and how we can come together. And so it's been great to see the training and the conversation and the people that come back over and over again from more workshops. But what's also been incredibly beautiful, and I think that this has helped with the openness to the role in the industry that, um, that you asked about earlier, Amari, is how it's created community. It's just created a really beautiful community. And I love that Like people will come to our workshops and, and then go take Anne's workshop and then go to Kate or they'll come to us because they did, took something from Kate or they took something from Anne. And so this, um, I love that because what it's doing is it's creating a camaraderie in this new discipline, which is also not the model that we've had. The model that we've had when a new discipline comes up in our industry is, oh, I own this or I, I created this and now I, I have to follow this teacher and that teacher. And we, Chelsea and I especially don't want that. What we want is everybody to go train with everybody. And that's one reason we don't certify we don't want to give you a stamp that says oh you're you got this certification stamp you're this kind of intimacy person now because the work is always growing it's always changing it's, a, it's always progressing and so if you get stuck in thinking this is the only training this is the only way we can do this you're going to be up the river three three years from now six months from now when we have a whole another way of establishing boundaries when we have a whole another way of looking at consent so the shifting online, I mean, the educational aspect has gone very well. People have we've gotten very good feedback about what they've learned and implementing it, going and implementing it to answer that part of the question. But what that has led me to saying is what I actually think the shifting online has done for all the organizations is um, created community, a community that this discipline needed in a space to have conversation and discourse about it.
4: And it's also created, you know, this idea of transparency. You know, I took my best practices classes from Chelsea and Lawrence. So I send all my cohort to them. I'm like, if you can pick up a class in TIE, pick up a class in TIE because they're teaching it the best in the game. So my idea is, is that while I teach specifics, uh, around race and culture and intersectionality and gender uh, gender studies in, in my cohort. I have about 13 now um, who I mentor privately. So it's kind of like I'm a mashup between Kate and Laura. You know, they're, they're sourcing the information from repu- reputable sources that wanna play with us. You know, I wanna play with everybody in this industry and i think it's important that we share information in that way
3: and there's enough work for everybody we don't have to hoard
2: it too much
4: work there's so much work
3: and do you want to speak a little bit about the work you do with the
4: intimacy collective yeah that's a kind of an interesting uh happy moment uh that that just kind of sprouted chessa betancourt and jess smith uh are two well, uh, Jess is a professor out in uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, Chessa, I believe now lives in Virginia She's uh, or Maryland. She's moved around uh, a little bit, but we just kind of met and decided that we were going to be best buddies. And what we do is we collect data from the industry, from students, from teachers, from professional artists. About what they're missing in their intimacy practice. So we've come up with a, I think about a 40, 40 question survey that we sent out. We're actually meeting next week to, to send out another one uh, to see how the climate has changed uh, over the last six months, uh, just to kind of keep our ear to the ground on what students feel they need, what professors feel they need, uh, what professional artists feel they need when they're moving into rehearsal because i mean it's not going to be long before we open back up and i feel like this you know theatrically hollywood is just running like wild mustangs i don't i mean it is from for all intents and purposes it is a very safe environment and i also um have a uh Compliance, I'm a compliance officer for COVID 19, and all of my cohort in LA also have carried that compliance uh, certification. But we're, you know, theater is about to open back up, and it's just important for us as a collective to be able to share that information with intimacy professionals and with the people. who have taken the survey. So yeah, we're about to gear back up with that. And that's uh, the intimacy collective.
1: Can I ask what does diversity look like in the field? Because I mean, you know, there's a lot of research out there. As I told you all, I'm a sociologist. There's a lot of research out there that basically says, you know, kind of who we are as people and what we bring to a situation certainly impacts the people we're working with and And so, um, you know, if that's in terms of the way, uh, you know, you train things that are taken into consideration. But what does diversity look like in terms of gender, if it's religion, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, all those different things in the field?
2: Do you mean in terms of intimacy specialists, choreographers and coordinators and directors? Yes.
4: I think it's getting better. Like, I'm here. I feel like it's growing from a place of uh, being a little monochromatic, if I can say so, to diversifying out with all the different aspects of identity, which is great. I mean, one thing that makes me really happy is that I have two uh, individuals in my cohort that identify as gender gender nonconforming which is great. And um, actually three members, one just um, decided that that was going to be their, their, um, their identity, which is great. We had a party, but um, you know, it's really special to see something that has kind of been sequestered away, broadening out and Thank God for the people that built the structure. There's no shade about that at all. Um, because certainly we needed vocabulary, certainly we needed techniques, certainly we needed, uh, you know, an entryway into this being better for everyone. You know, for, one, for one moment, you know, you, we talked about white men, but I would like to talk about black men and intimacy. Um, I don't know that there are any black men in the intimacy field. I mean, someone chime in if they've heard of I'm one. training a few. Okay. So, you know, there's this lack of black male intimacy specialists. And the only thing Hollywood needs, I think at this point, is black men in intimacy specialities, uh, Simply because what is coming out of Hollywood and what will be coming out of Hollywood, I have a feeling, is stories of trauma around Black people, Black men, Black Lives Matter, all these stories. And so, and, and, and stories of intimacy as well. So where I feel like those stories are being told, I have issue with who's going to lead them through that on set. Who's going to be watching them in a knowing way on set. Um And that's my biggest concern. So I am really trying to uh, invite black men to think about intimacy as uh, a career or think of intimacy as a, something to add to their their skill set, uh, so that when we move into these stories, uh, they will be there um, to kind of take up space for the black actors, who are, are expected to do these things?
3: In my experience, um, a lot of, actually, uh, almost 50% of my trainees are um, identify in some way that is not heteronormative um, or in some way that is not um, part of, you know, kind of the visible, you know, cis, straight, white, et cetera. Um, so for me, I think that also speaks to that piece of accessibility, that the reality is that a lot of this work is, Still, even in this stage, somewhat inaccessible uh, to people. Uh, the fact that you know, again, you know, I I don't know many people who would be able to you know take off a weekend or take off a day of work in order to do a synchronous workshop. And that's what a lot of my students have spoken to me about: is that the fact that they can do it on their own time and at their own pace, and when it works for them really does kind of support their general schedule um, and and help them, you know, in that way. I look around and I see such an interesting sea change coming, but also knowing, you know, that it's gonna take time to get there fully. And, you know, it's it's all a journey, you know, just like anti-racist work, it's a journey. It's, you know, you're never done right? You're always unpacking, you're always doing the work. Um, and I think it's going to be similar in that type of way um, for, for gender representation as well.
0: In addition to my curiosity about intimacy direction, and how that's changing um, the scope of what we do in the rehearsal room, I also am very curious about playback theater and how it's used to help um, audiences and the performers deal with their own stories. So I invited three more amazing women to come and speak with Omari and myself. Maria Hendricks is an artist and activist based out of the Boston area. She's been a playback theater artist for approximately five years and is a founding member of the group. Red Sage Stories, a BIPOC playback theatre group, and the first of its kind in the area. They're multi-generational, multilingual, and were recently featured in the publication Playback for Social Impact, Stories and Practical Tips. Tonya Pinero is the wake-up artist, a term she coined in 1997 to describe her multifaceted work in the world as a practitioner, minister, Organizational admin, group facilitator, life coach, spiritual guide, dream keeper, and improvisational singer and actor. In 2003, she joined True Story Theater, a nonprofit playback theater company based in Arlington, Massachusetts, as an actor and later became an officer on their board of directors. Tonya works with organizations, groups, and individuals who want to live authentically, build community. And create positive connections and be the change they wish to see in the world. Heidi Winters Vogel is an activist, artist, and teacher. Currently, she performs virtually with World Playback Theater, Playback for People, and Thursday Zoomers. Heidi co-founded Inside Out Playback Theater in 2010 in Virginia and practices Playback, Theater of the Oppressed, and arts activism using storytelling to engage and empower community-generated change. She's an accredited playback trainer through the Center for Playback Theater, holds a BA in theater from the University of Minnesota, and an MFA in directing for theater from Pennsylvania State University. She's currently an associate professor of theater at Wabash College in Indiana. Uh, Thank you all for coming. And um, I think, I think for me and Omari and the listeners, I think one of the, we should start with a, um, sort of general overview of what playback theater is. And and I'm gonna ask Heidi, since you're on the um, the advisory council of the North American Playback, um, if you would just give us a quick overview of what playback theater is.
5: Sure. Uh, so playback theater is improvisational storytelling. Uh, uh, there's a group of actors that Uh, gather stories or listen to stories from the audience and then play them back improvisationally in the moment using music, text, metaphor, movement. Uh, And it's designed to um, be a very um, uh, intimate and connected event uh, between the actors and, and the audience. I would pass it if I can to Tonya because she has worked for a long time with Playback North America as well. So
6: the only things I would add to that is Playback is set up in the way that we have an interviewer who is separate from the actors and the interviewer is called a conductor. And we also have a music element. And so within the performing troupe, There are generally four to five actors and then a music table and the conductor. And it's, the whole experience is like a ritual. Mm -hmm. There are very specific things that we do to begin and to invite a story. And when the story has been played back by the actors, then the conductor checks back with the teller of the story to ask them how they feel now that they've seen their story so that we always check back with the teller and then we close sometimes the story may be so strongly emotional that the conductor after they check back with the teller may ask the audience either during the telling or afterwards so what came up for you as you watched that story and then we might get little snippets from the audience but that's essentially it and then we have a closing and then we're done
0: Thank you. I, I appreciate um, sort of the the broad strokes overview of, of what uh, we're talking about today. Um, so. Um, so I'm going to go back to, to Tonya. Um, I watched a short video where you said that um, that playback is making change happen inside of people. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate? Um, what you meant by that phrase Mm -hmm. it's beautiful evocative phrase yeah Mm -hmm.
6: so i'll start with an audience focus when you're sitting in the audience and you're listening to these stories that are events in people's lives they're not just made up stories and the story one of the rules quote unquote of playback is it has to be your story you cannot tell someone else's story but as you're listening there is often almost always somebody else in the audience many people in the audience will connect with your story not on the details of the story but on the impact of the story and so then when you see it played back on stage and if the actors do well to reflect what they heard and the actors are trained to really take in and connect with the emotions of the story and not the facts of the story it's the emotions that everybody can connect with and so when i say it might create change within a person and also the actors the playback and the watching of it and the hearing that someone's had some experience that relates to mine it allows you to breathe a little bit more in your own experience. Sometimes people will say, that wasn't my story, but that was my story. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, it made me think completely differently about it or feel something else about it. When When people leave the performance, they're talking to each other. That does not happen in most theater. Where the audience members who don't know each other will say, Oh, you know that thing? Or oh, did you see that thing? That happens after playback performances.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I saw, you know, in, in all of your bios, the many places, um, you know, that you're doing um, playback theater, you know, from the communities to prisons um, to, you know, um, to colleges. So. Heidi, would you talk about how you um, perhaps use these playback techniques in an educational um, setting or in your own teaching? Sure. Um,
5: I incorporate playback, uh, playback rituals, playback tools in actually all my classes, Mm -hmm. whether it's a general education class or um, an acting class or an improv class, which is is more obvious. And um, uh, first of all, the, the ability to share stories and connect with people on a personal level, I think profoundly impacts relationship and your ability to be present in a space and so um, I often, whatever class I'm teaching, on the first day, we'll break up into dyads and, and share stories, um, give them a, a prompt, uh, they'll share stories with each other. Um, and if, if it's a performance class, then they will create images with their body to represent the, um, the, the story they heard as a way of saying, yes, I listened deeply and I'm embodying what you what you told me. And uh, that has really sort of changed up my, my classes and my student engagement because uh, unfortunately, so much of higher ed operates from sort of the neck up. And, um, and what playback brings to particularly non-theater classes is the, is the welcoming of the whole body and the embodied experience and knowledge that these students come into the room with. Uh, So that's the way I use it um, in in sort of non-theater classes. I do teach, when I teach improv, um, everything in traditional improv is useful for playback. Um, Everything in traditional acting is useful for playback. And so uh, I always like to mix it in because it allows, again, in a class that can be scary, particularly for non-theater students, uh, the ability for them to share stories and and. Uh, you know, talk about where they're at that day, uh, and have the the rest of the class sort of play it back, physicalize it back to them. Says, you know, I'm welcome here, wherever I'm at, and now let's try more. Uh, so um, oh, it's a very useful tool in that kind of in that kind of way. Uh, the other way I use it is we actually put together a troupe. Um, on campus, so that students can um, uh, integrate their, their work into the community. We can work with community organizations and storytelling and community building organizations on campus. Uh, so there's a number of different levels that I have found where I could integrate this work into the educational process.
1: Can I ask, do actors ever get it wrong? so when the storyteller gives a story uh and um, you know actors i guess perceive what is being given has there ever been any misperception and if so what happens with the storyteller
5: yes (laughs) go ahead tonya
6: (laughs) (laughs) i've been on stage a lot so i'd like i'd love to answer this i invite everybody else's comments um yes we can get it wrong it does happen There have been tellers that went, eh, you know, so, but the thing that we try to do as actors is we're listening with our emotional body, not with our mind. We cannot, that improvisational thing you said, Heidi, about, you know, you bring it, you have to know how to do improvisation on stage in order to do playback really well. And when we do get it wrong, depending on what it is that we got wrong, the conductor will ask for a redo. And we'll take one little segment of the story that the teller wasn't happy with, and we'll replay it now that we have a better understanding of it. It doesn't happen often. Tellers are usually very gracious and like, oh yeah, that was great, even if they didn't think it was great. I've had you know, shows when we had a person say, no, that's not it. And when they said it like that, I said, we really got it. We nailed it. And they just didn't want to see it. Because when you say you didn't get any of it, that's a whole another level of, you know, like rejection or whatever. But anyway, yes, we do get it wrong. Not so much. And then it also depends on the, um, the experience and the exposure to lots of different kinds of audiences. Anyone else want to add to that?
7: I'd say um, I'm mostly in agreement with what was just previously stated. Um, It does occur. It is a rare occurrence. It tends to be a portion uh, with red sage stories. um, We we call it going to the heart of the story. Um, I think we're probably all in the same page, just using different terminology in that that regard, but that there's sometimes a, a portion or something that meant something to that individual that did, wasn't seen, that sometimes is mentioned or wasn't mentioned uh, as clearly. And then that conductor does a little recon and then we, we re- replay it as it were. And what I found in my experiences only in the last four to five years, it's, it's lesser than um, my colleagues here. But what I've discovered is that when it has happened, it was usually something that was deeper and in that therapeutic moment, so almost so to speak, of seeing your story actualized that perhaps you may have wanted to see or it brought something up. That was a discovery that I found really interesting um, in those in those rare moments of not getting it, mm. so to speak, in answer to your question, Dr. Jackson.
6: And thanks for asking that question.
0: Yeah. So. So Maria, you just mentioned um, that your company, um, Red Sage Stories, um, can you talk a little bit about why it was important for you to start a playback theater company that's composed of um, BIPOC performers, and what that's bringing to um, you know the the form that you're doing?
7: Um, certainly, um, Melissa Nisbet Freeman is the founder. I was part of the founding members. Um, who I believe uh, Tanya and Heidi are familiar with. Um, started this off that there was there's just a, there was a need there was a, a voice that perhaps wasn't being heard in the same way traditional way, um, and where playback is so immersive and can connect even if you're not of the same culture or language, which is why playback theater is done internationally and it works even if the actors and the audience aren't necessarily of the same language, that's the beauty of it. That sort of translates in terms of race and ethnicity as well, but there was something that wasn't, that was something that wasn't being seen. And um, when I was brought on board and came into it um, with that group of founding members, it was just a, a, just a sense of, of, of a, ho- a homecoming almost. It was just such a, a relief to to be in a space where it was that much more of a safe space that was created so that voices of color could ex- ex- not only express themselves, but just be represented perhaps more fully than um, what I t- have been known to call the being the raisin and the oatmeal. I more oats of my life than the raisin and the oatmeal so it was nice to be (laughs) you know you know multiple raisins in some lovely brown sugar oatmeal it was just lovely and it was it tastes delicious and the, the thing was that we were also in addition to that as we grew it was working in the community we're based out of Dorchester and we were working in the community our home base was the Haley House we 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 built and recruited in the community with folks that had extensive experience as actors and in improv, and people that were not. And all equally impactful because you had that training of what playback theater is. And we call ourselves Red Sage Stories, colon, art for social change. And so it's a beautiful marriage of arts and activism by and for primarily people of color, but we also work in multiple communities with all kinds of interests in all kinds of ways, whether it be health and mental health, addiction, all of the things that were mentioned earlier. So I just found myself to be just very blessed to find a niche and be part of creating that. um, And hopefully that will grow and we'll see more of it.
0: Thank you, Maria. Um, so I am interested in this idea of, um, you know, how people come to playback and and why you know it it becomes sort of part of of who you are and what you're interested in. And so in looking, um, Tonya, at your background, you know, um, I really was curious of how you came to theater and um, and playback theater because you know, you look at your degrees and, you know, you've got legal studies and management. So, (laughs) so I'm so curious about, yeah, like how, how, how you were introduced to, to this and, and how it became so, so much a part of your life. Mm -hmm.
6: So I think if you look at my resume, most of all that stuff and the degrees and the work and all of that, I call it my last century life. Mm -hmm. So in this century, um, I first came to improvisational theater training. I got a, I had just moved. I got a flyer in the mail and I didn't even know how this woman got my new address, but I said, Ooh, I want to learn this. So I went and took her classes, Diana Giardella, masterful teacher. A couple of years later, now I'm working with the people in the, in her class and different ones of them were starting little troops and little projects. One of the people that I met in her class got married. I'm skipping a lot of stuff. At her wedding, she asked me to come and sing, because that's mostly I'm a singer, you know, percussionist person. I was there with a friendly friend guitarist, and we were up in the balcony, and down in the audience, there was Christopher and Ann Ellinger, who that was not their name then, but it's their names now. And they pulled me aside. They asked me about an instrument I played. It's called a thunder tube. And we got to talking, so they invited me to come sing with them. Several months later, I ended up finally going to go sing with them on this specific day. And they called me to say, can we postpone till next week? And I said, sure. So I go next week, and I never asked people their personal business, but I was impelled to ask them, why did you need to postpone? Why would I ask them that? It's not my business, but I did. And they said, oh, well, we're holding auditions for this new theater company, playback theater company called True Story. Really? I, 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 I like improvisation, can I come audition? And they said, sure. So I went to audition and they took me in. So that was in 2003 of January. And I've been with True Story ever since. That's the real short version of the story. (laughs) That's how I got into playback. And then when I got there, I really came to understand. This isn't entertainment. This is service. And that's who I am. I'm a service person. And so when I got to see this melding of being in service to the public And I get to be creative, and I get to do stuff, and I, that was like, you know, the best of both worlds, and that's why I've been with it for so long, and the culture they created within the troupe is very love-based, very communication-based, and that also resonated with who I am as a person. So that's that little story.
0: (laughs) No, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, um, so much of, as a theater person, as a theater educator, I'm always like, how do we get? we get people to join our tribes, and so it's interesting to hear what's um, what's attracting you, uh, what attracted you all to this work, um, Heidi. I'm going to ask you. You're uh, you have accreditation from the Center for Playback Theater. Can you talk a little bit about um, that process and um, and what maybe that you know added to to your um, technique or your you know your commitment to playback?
5: Sure. So, um, playback was invented, devised, created in the mid '70s um, by Jonathan Fox and um, and Joe Salas, uh, combining a love of storytelling and psychodrama, and um, and since then it has blossomed as, uh, as, you, as you've been hearing about all over the world. Um, and in fact, there's fewer companies in the United States per capita than in most other countries, even though it started here. And um, the, uh, the work that they, they started and then continued, um, resulted in the development of the Playback Center, uh, or the Center for Playback Theater. Uh, which is um, sort of a clearinghouse for classes for um, uh, uh, certified trainers and, and all sorts of resources for playback all over the world. And, um, Uh, They have, uh, uh, their accreditation process involves taking a certain number of classes, um, a a process of them, and then participating in a leadership program that requires you to write a a, a long paper and um, go and spend, uh, we spent two weeks in England, uh, a group of about 14, 15 of us from all over the world um, doing theater, playback theater. Uh, really digging deeply in not only how to do it, how to do it better, um, but also how to train, how to um, encourage other people in that process. And then when you finish that, you have the option to apply to be an accredited trainer, which I did just before the pandemic. And so (laughs) we've all taken this weird shift in that Uh, but um, that has deepened um, in in a a couple of different first really concrete way is that that group of people that met in England, um, we of course went back to our separate troops, went back to our separate places in the world. And then with the pandemic, we suddenly got back together because we can on Zoom and we started a troop. So we perform um, at least once a month. i um, zooming in from, um, um, uh, we've got uh, Macau, Philippines, India, um, uh, Norway, Germany, yeah, lots of places that we're coming in together from and, uh, and offering performances in this different medium. And so that's been a, a real gift um, to continue to connect with those people. And having worked with them already, because we had spent those intensive two weeks, um, I do work with another group that only met through Zoom, another international group, and we give performances as well. Um, and while that has been uh, successful and, and really exciting, it is it, it's hard to replicate that in-person work that we did. Uh, so back to your original question about accrediting. I, I train my students, um, and I look forward to, after the pandemic, getting into uh, to doing more in-person training and uh, and exploring more what my accreditation now gives me as uh, as a trainer in playback.
1: So I wanted to ask... Oh, I'm sorry about that. No, Maria, please go.
7: Oh, no, absolutely. Um, just to piggyback on that is that I very much feel the same way about missing that in person and they're not being it not being quite the same but was blown away um by how playback theater does lend itself to this medium I didn't think it would per se and we found ourselves being in high demand of my particular group and we're working a ton at the peak, at the beginning of of the pandemic and almost quasi creating variations and new forms um, of of the storytelling and finding it equally impactful. And that was really surprising, rewarding, and exciting that we're still able to do this in such a major impactful way and still be busy um, in this unprecedented time as it were us with Red Stage Stories, we almost exclusively, all we do is, because it's art for social change, um, while we still do the themes, um, particularly when we're doing our monthly performances, uh, everything that we do, and it might be because of the communities that we're working in and the groups that we work with and for, um, everything had, had that slant. There was not a show, so to speak, that occurred that did not bring in something current and working in, you know, the Roxbury Dorchester area, the themes always were about, it was, it was housing. We did restore, you know, sort of justice. Um, there were, there were the summer reckoning, reckoning, in, in most recent, but in the in the five years that we've been in existence, that's always been the case. And that's been the beauty of it. And because also we're multi-generational and multilingual, um, that's been kind of a fun thing that we've always been able to incorporate and and been, has been something that's been very insightful and to work in communities that um, particularly in the Boston and New England area, having having expanded upon that, um, has been extremely impactful. So. Yes, it happens at every single show, even if we're not necessarily intending it. And that tells us that we're we're we formed for a reason and that there is a reason for not only our existence but the work that we're doing.
0: So I think this is important.'re you're, you're, um, obviously, there's so much, you know, there's so much happening, especially in the last you know couple of years um, in the United States, um, so many social justice issues um, that people have been focusing on. So my question to, to you all is, how do you protect yourselves as actors, improvers, the conductor, um, from not taking some of this um, trauma that you're hearing and then expressing back? How do you not take that home with you? How, what, what have, you, how have you learned to um, you know, let that go at the end of a performance?
7: um as part of our rehearsal process and our just process in general we always have uh we we debrief so to speak after the fact after a show to in, in order to um do that but also before starting before we uh begin a performance we will play back for each other in terms of just where we are mentally and emotionally on that given day um and as part of our rehearsal process once we've gone through our our steps so to speak um that that is part of it so we are we are each other's you know therapists in that way and when there have been events um that have been occurring as of recent it comes up we we work through them as a group just to assist each other as black indigenous people of color that Group that we are, um, we're constantly we're constantly doing that, and, and, I'm, and I'm so glad that we have that practice already. That it's become more so of a tool for us um, currently, and we check and we check in, and you you, you become a family um, it, it within that within that group of of playbackers. Ditto. <laughs>
6: I I guess one more little element I might add is that certain topics bring up a lot of emotions. And once we started getting into doing the race work, Mm
4: -hmm.
6: and my troop is predominantly white, we do have people of color in our troop, that we had to do as a troop a lot of work around our identities, not just our racial identities, but all of them. And so, and we've done it in rounds of work. So we might be spending six months at rehearsals, like one rehearsal a month, for example, or something extra, where we're really talking about who am I? How do I feel? How do I, you know, how does the world treat me? How do I exist in the world? And we've had these conversations. We've asked facilitators to come in and help us mm-hmm. to so that we have like an objective person, like helping us work through our stuff it's so valuable. So it's also yeah, so it's that therapeutic thing for us. It's connecting with the audience. We're all humans in this at the bottom line. And so let's do this together. Yeah.
0: I really um I really love that and you know, having worked in sort of traditional theater where you create a character and you're saying someone else's words, it's it's really fascinating for me to hear Uh, You know, that you start the evening by showing yourselves to encourage the audience to show themselves and that it's 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 a circle. It's a circle of of trust and faith. And um, and that's really amazing. Um, And, you know, a really exciting place to where theater can be. Um, um, So when we're talking about, you know, we were doing theatrical intimacy. We're doing playback, and um, you know, you as a sociologist, um, you know, thinking about, I guess, you know, the theater group or the audience group. I mean, you know, what what are your thoughts on sort of these um, somewhat new ideas of how to create safe theater spaces?
1: I mean, I think it's needed, right? I think we we think of just how people need to evolve in every profession, how people need to have professional development in every profession, how people need to be protected in every profession. And so it makes sense.
0: It makes sense. Yeah. Um, Hey, it was really great to see you. Yeah. And spend a little bit of time with you after, um, I, I saw in my time hop today, eight years ago today, I was on Colby Sawyer's campus signing my uh, my life away. I got I went up to yeah eight years ago today. So
1: yes, okay. In right, I forgot you were in New Hampshire, so that's why you were there.
0: Yeah, no, I I was actually in Rhode Island. Rhode Island. I was in Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. So, but I drove up to like you know whatever, Um, see a show and whatever. But yeah, eight years like it feels like. A million years ago, and yet it feels like yesterday, right? Like it was a whole different world eight years ago. Um, thank you. Oh, <laughs> Say
1: hello. you've already made it awkward.
0: No, not awkward. It's great, <laughs> Junior. All right, I do have to go, um, and jump in the car and get yeah. to campus. Um, I will talk to you soon. um, That was when um, Amari's son, um, Amari Jr. OJ, popped into the Zoom just to wave hello, but I had to run um, because something exciting is happening this semester at my college. We are actually going to do a live stream of a show on the main stage, which means we have been um, socially distancing, building a set. So hope is in the air. I hope it is for you, too. And um, next month, uh, hopefully, both Loretta and I will be back for a new episode of Traumaturgy.